So I thought we'd start this morning with a little bit of um, fun, meaning I want to start with some flashcards as if it's fourth grade multiplication time, okay? Does that sound good? I'm going to basically do this. I'm going to show you symbols one at a time, and I'm going to encourage you to yell out what you think these symbols are. Does that sound good? Is that good, Jeremy? Okay, cool. If Jeremy signs off, we're good. So we're going to do the first symbol. What is this? Print. Print. Oh, so wait, this is your tattoo you just got. Remember? <laughs> That's that 12-foot tattoo you got on your back. Okay? So this is a print symbol. We all knew that. Does it say prince? No. All right, next. Harry Potter, Deathly Hollows. If somebody yelled Harry Potter, people are going to get upset. It's Deathly Hollows. This is Lorenzo's tattoo. Just so everybody knows, this is what Lorenzo has tattooed on him. He's a big Harry Potter fan, okay? Just so everybody knows. All right, so everybody got that. Does it say Harry Potter, Deathly Hollows? No. Next. Ooh. Communism. This is Bryce's tattoo. Like, <laughs> joking. It's not. Joking. Strong symbol, right? We know that. All right, next. Thank you, God, for Taco Bell. Mm. Everybody here love Taco Bell? My kids. Yeah. Nobody else. You're all a bunch of liars trying to be like, oh, L.A. healthy. No, you all love Taco Bell secretly. Okay? And then lastly, Christianity, cross, crucifixion. Leave this up for a little bit, if you don't mind, Jiro. But... I really want us to sort of just start off and get that symbolism is part of who we are. It's how our thoughts identify significant beliefs or purposes like Taco Bell. So everything from the lotus flower in Buddhism to the star of David David in Judaism to Prince, but then to the cross of Jesus Christ, it is all representing something meaningful. But I would say, and I think we would agree, the cross is different. The cross is different. Not only in comparison to the other symbols, but it's also different in, even in Christianity itself. Okay? It was, it was the cross that was chosen in our history to represent Christianity. Not a dove, not a crib, not a crown, not a simple fish. Anybody here have a fish on their car? No, it wasn't even that. Do you want to know what that means? We can talk about it later. It's not a fish. The cross, which is the universal Christian symbol acknowledged by millions everywhere, is mind-blowing because this is what we do. I mean, it's the cross that people get tattoos of. It's the cross that people put dazzle on the back of their denim jacket. It's the cross that we make out of little bookmarks in our children's ministry here. Because, hear me out, because the cross, again, like I've said, is something that's quite meaningful, hopefully to, to Christians. Now, If you were to wear this, because it is meaningful, if you were to wear this cross, let's say in a necklace or your bedazzled jean jacket, and you're going to walk down the streets of Rome wearing that, you would be the weirdest person there. People would look at you like like you are a freak. Because if we are to think about it, to wear a cross is to wear an executioner's device as jewelry. It's odd. So if that's the case, we should be bedazzling electric chairs on our denim jackets. 
We should be getting tattoos of lethal injection. We should be making the kids have make paper mache guillotines in children's ministry. Why, 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 why is this sign of death our universal branding, Christians here? Is it because the cross is not, is it because, this is a question, is it because the cross is not a symbol of death, but for Christianity it symbolizes the end of death? For Christianity, the cross is the nucleus of everything, of everything we need to know about God. Pastor John um, says this, it should be on the screen, but he says, being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, the Christ form is paradoxically uh, the clearest revelation of who God is. If you are here today and a seeker or curious about faith or perhaps have forgotten, I would say, make the cross your starting point with God. I contend that the cross is the most God-revealing moment in all of the Bible. It's this cross-shaped keyhole in which we can peek through and say, God is like that. God is like that. God is not greater than he is in his humiliation. God is not more glorious than he is in his self-surrender. God is not more powerful than he is in his helplessness. And today, 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 we are going to see what seems to be a very, very helpless, helpless Lord. A helpless God almost. So helpless that he can't even carry his own cross. So read with me in Luke chapter 23, which you should have open. Verse 26, we're going to start there. I love the sound of rustling Bible pages. Good job, Derek. Melody, you got a phone. Verse 26, and as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So like Lorenzo said, if you have been with us on the short series and the final hours and the final days of Christ's life, just a very, very, very brief recap. We did start out on a Wednesday night at literally Christ's Last Supper. And from there, we followed Jesus into a garden. And from there, we saw the heartbreak of his betrayal with Judas. Then we saw Jesus get arrested. And then he went last week to six different court trials. Each time somebody trying to accuse him of something, it's a very, uh, you know, Netflix making a murderer type of thing that was happening with him. And then when it couldn't go on anymore, when the flogging were done and when the beatings had finished and then when the mockery needed rest, Pilate gave over Jesus to be crucified on the universal symbol that was the cross. And he did this on a Friday morning. That means we've been with Jesus from Wednesday to Friday and Jesus is going on no sleep, He's starving, probably he's hungry, and he's very fatigued. He's going to be extremely dirty and sweaty, and he has an unbelievable loss of blood. He could probably barely see through his swollen eyes. The Old Testament book of Isaiah chapter 52 prophesies that Jesus would not have even looked human due to the swollenness of his face from his tortures. He wouldn't even look human. And it's at that very moment The Roman guards took a large, heavy wooden cross and threw it on his exposed back and said, march. So from Pilate's palace to Golgotha, the place of the skull, 
which is what it's called, where Christ will be executed, is roughly 650 yards. That's over six football fields for any of you sport nuts here. And guess what? It's all uphill. Carrying a cross, which scholars say probably weighed anywhere between 50 to 110 pounds. No wonder this disfigured man needed help. Just let that sink in. Jesus needed help. Jesus needed help. And a man named Simon, who we know nothing about, is grabbed and thrown in there. We don't know if he was reluctant. We don't know if he was merciful. We don't know if he was kind. We will never know. But, 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 but for a short moment, for a short walk, Christ who was rejected by everybody, Christ who was abandoned by everybody, Christ who was utterly alone, has Simon. This guy who he doesn't know. And I just wonder in that moment if Christ just felt unified even if it was for 650 yards, if he just felt unified with somebody. I wonder if Simon's life changed. I mean, these are things we, you know, we won't know on this side of heaven. Look at verse 27. And as Simon is carrying the cross, this is happening, verse 27, and there followed him a great multitude of people and women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me but weep for yourselves and your children. Even as Jesus walking, as he's walking to his death, he is thinking about other people. This is the Jesus we serve. He's constantly thinking about other people. So let's see what Jesus is getting at here. Verse 29, for behold, the days are coming when they will, uh, when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that, have been, that never bore the breast that never nursed. Oh my, Jesus. <laughs> What are you getting at? Look at verse 30. Seems like a random speech to have, right? On the side of the road. (laughs) Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? And it's here, if you're like me, we sort of all give a collective unified, what? What what are you talking about? Jesus these women could have been like, oh, he's, he's lost his mind. <laughs> there are women following him and lamenting and weeping for him because why shouldn't they? Jesus right now is a sad sight to behold. It is entirely natural that somebody would be moved to tears. Don't we think we all would be moved to tears? If you watch The Passion of the Christ, you were probably moved to tears and that was just a movie. So in this moment, if you were there and smelt it and felt it, it would have been, you would have been rocked. Which is why these verses, if you're with me, are a bit shocking. Jesus says, don't weep for me. He doesn't want them to waste tears on what cannot and should not be altered. But they should weep and well over those who will not surrender or acknowledge their sin in future judgment. The point of Good Friday, which is what we're talking about today, is to not feel sorry for Jesus. Jesus does not need yours or my sympathy. Jesus wants weeping over unrepentant sin. Jesus wants wailing for those who will not do anything with their transgressions. 
And all of this is Jesus directly quoting a prophecy from Zechariah in the Old Testament. Now, I did promise last week that I would give a little teeny baby theology lesson on prophecy and prophetic fulfillment. Because in this little mini-series, we've ran past tons, tons of fulfilled prophecy and haven't had a moment to slow down with it. So if during this morning you've already zoned out, you may want to check back in because you're going to probably dig this. Okay, These final moments of Christ's lives are pulsating pulsating with Christ, uh, with prophecies and with uh, prophetic fulfillment. I mean, it's, it's astounding. And many of these prophecies regarding Christ were written thousands and thousands of years earlier, before his birth, and they are fulfilled in his ending hours and days. For instance, the Messiah will enter Jerusalem as a king is riding on a donkey, Zechariah chapter 9. The chances of this being fulfilled, scholars would say, is one in a hundred. Christ fulfilled it. Okay, that's an easy one. The Messiah will be betrayed by a friend, as we saw last week. The chances of this being fulfilled, scholars say, one in a thousand. Christ fulfilled it. The Messiah will be betrayed by 30 or with 30 pieces of silver. Chances of this happening, one in a thousand. Christ fulfilled it. The Messiah will remain silent while he was afflicted. One in a thousand, Christ fulfilled it. Now, when confronted with these statistics, there might be some skeptics here, which I think is a safe assumption, that they will fall back and say that this argument, that Jesus purposefully fulfilled these prophecies, which I'll give you that, right? Well, there might be a safe assumption that Jesus was in high school. He read the old scriptures like, oh, I'm going to need to get a donkey and a bad friend. Check. Like, that's what he was thinking. That's what he had to process. I have to do this purposely. No doubt, Jesus knew he was fulfilling prophecy as it was happening. No doubt. But how were to think of the many prophecies concerning Jesus that he could have no way of forged? For example, the prophecy concerning the town of his birth, Micah 5.2, fulfilled. I don't think Jesus had any sway in the womb. Bethlehem. I don't know how, but you know what I mean? That was a baby talking in the womb. Mike got it. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. Look who's talking now. Jesus is. It was my entire life goal to make a look who's talking now analogy, and I did it. The nature of his betrayal, the nature of his betrayal, Psalm 41.9, fulfilled. Or friends, one of the most remarkable messianic prophecies in Hebrew scriptures is it precisely states that the Messiah will die by crucifixion. Today, we will witness that fulfilled. It is found in Psalm 22 and it states, excuse me, it starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the psalm continues. It says, dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Then it goes on to say, all of my bones are on display. You remember we talked about that last week, that the scourging would have taken flesh and exposed bones and internal organs. People stare at me and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes among and cast lots for my garments. That prophecy was written 10 centuries before Jesus was born. But if that's not convincing enough, it was written when Jewish method of execution was stoning. It was written before the Romans had developed crucifixion as a method of execution. 
man. Somebody much smarter than me did the actual math. Multiplying all these probabilities together produces a number which they rounded off at 10 to the 28th power. Then they divided this number by an estimate of number of people who have lived since then. That is 88 billion. All that to say is even if Jesus fulfilled 50, and scholars say it's somewhere around 150, but even if he just fulfilled 50, that's 10 to the 157th power. That's 157 zeros. What this does is, is it presents a challenge for anyone discrediting the, the claims of Christ. Or as it's been said before, this presents a conflict of interest between God who has become man and man who wishes to become God. What the crucifixion does and has always done is present two options. Be on one side of the cross and receive or be on the other side of the cross and reject. This option is still presented to this day, in this moment, in this room. That's exactly how we see in verse 32. Read with me. Two others who were criminals who were led to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that it's called the skull, there they were crucified and the criminals on his right and on his left. One rejected, one received. More on that in a little bit. But what I want us to see is that three charged, tried, and accused men were crucified on Friday morning. And now though, even though I've built up that the crucifixion really is one of the most esteemed moments in all of Hebrew and Greek scriptures, and it is, but all it gets is four simple words. Did you notice that? It literally, all it gets is, then they crucified him. That's all it gets. That's all we get as readers. The description of the actual crucifixion is this brief in every single one of the gospels. They are stripped down as if the authors could barely bring themselves to describing anything but the naked facts. For one moment in their calling as authors, they are no longer poets, they are no longer historians, they are no longer, they are no longer writers, they are witnesses. They are just speechless. And some of these authors have been around Jesus for a length of time and witnessed a calming of storms or, or Jesus was banishing sickness or Jesus was like arm wrestling demons over the top Sylvester Stallone style. They witnessed all of this. But now they see before them a death penalty with Jesus that was reserved for only the worst of offenders. They have to be going, what? what, 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 what. And so with that, Let's talk a little bit about the actual physical crucifixion itself, if you're interested. I share what I'm about to share, not to shock us, but to show us the heavy price that was paid. And as I go over this portion, as we talk about what physical crucifixion would have been like, as we go over this portion, I would love in our thoughts and our mind or in your little journ journs or whatever, to write down in my stead or to write down for me or to be thinking about mine to bear. So, a cross, a crucifixion, was designed to inflict um, uh, optimal physical pain. Optimal. Death was not the goal of crucifixion. Torture was. Death was not the ultimate point. It was to inflict as much pain as possible. This procedure was dragged out for several hours and several days. 
They sometimes then would give wine mixed with some sort of, some sort of like primitive morphine, not to ease their suffering, but to keep them from passing out so that they could endure the pain longer. In Jesus' time, crucified men or women or whatever would have been a familiar sight, like billboards to Los Angeles. We just drive by them without even thinking now. That's what it would have been like. Teaching all who sees a billboard, don't do what they did. Now, contrary to what most believe about our universal symbol, the cross would have actually probably been more T-shaped. Not this, this. So if you have a cross jewelry, go home and throw it out. It's a heretical piece of jewelry. It would have been more T-shaped, okay? It would have not been far off the ground. So some people think they're looking way up at Jesus. Oh my God. No, it would not have been that far off the ground. And guards would have surrounded the criminal so that nobody would have taken him down. And there's a very safe assumption that Jesus was naked. We know this from verse 34 where it says, and they cast lots to divide his garments. Now, when those are crucified, some died quickly due to blood loss, but other could survive days then succumbing to dehydration or asphyxiation. The single spike in the victim's feet helped the victim push up to breathe. So they had to push up to breathe every time because they're just dangling. And they had to push on that giant spike in their feet. So So breathing was a luxury. They had to take their calculated breaths And when they pushed up, remember, their backs are exposed. Jesus' back was exposed. (gasps) And when the Roman guards were sick of it or they were done, they would go around breaking the legs of every single person who could no longer then push themselves up to breathe, essentially just killing them and taking away their breath. But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead thus fulfilling another prophecy that not a single one of his bones will be broken. The spike in Christ's hands, though, is a little bit more debated. Scientists, scholars, historians for years now have been arguing about its exact placement. Put in the palm, it's not going to hold the weight of a man, and so on and so forth. Ultimately, it don't matter. Who cares? If it's the palm or the wrist, or many, many believe the forearm, it doesn't matter. But beyond physical torment, crucifixion was designed with still another more callous intent. It was designed to thoroughly humiliate whoever was ever getting crucified. Humiliation, thus, and you know, hence the nudity. Friends, this is where we find God. The crucifixion could be easily argued, argued as, as man's most twisted action. This is where we find God. The crucifixion in ancient times was considered the most irreligious, godless, the most supreme penalty, most, more gruesome than burning or decapitation. It was vile. Friends, this is where we find God. Show me another faith system or another world religion that has anything like this. Christianity alone has its central focus be the suffering and abasement of its own God. And as the nails are in place and God hangs from wooden beams, four, four tremendous supernatural booming occurrences take place, ringing with verifying accomplishments. Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m. And for three hours, he hung there. 
And then from 12 to 3, the world around him just undoes itself. It's insane. First, Luke chapter 23, verse 45. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Now, some of you are thinking, curtain, who cares? I rip curtains all the time. Maybe you're a curtain ripper. Like, who cares? The temple was a highly sacred place. Unjewish or, or, or women were not allowed to go so far into it. But no one was allowed to go in the deepest of deepest where the center where God would dwell. And this curtain was torn in two. And we know that from history and from the other gospel accounts that this curtain would have been 30 feet wide, 60 feet high, and four inches thick. Anybody have a four inch thick curtain in their house? I don't, I don't believe so. And it was ripped from top to bottom as if God had torn it himself. As if God had torn it himself, accepting everyone. This, my friends, is the reversal of Eden. This is the spiritual stabilizing, where sinful men are now, have, now can have direct access through Jesus to God's presence, basically saying, no more sacrifices, no more temples, no more mediators needed. Christ's death has brought finality. Just think, if you would have been there in the temple, it's busy with Passover, could you just imagine being there? I just wonder if the sound of threads tearing would have just blown the windows out. The sounds of threads tearing, being pulled apart in order for man and God to be sewn together. Oh, Next, there was an off-the-scale earthquake. Matthew 27, verse 51, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. Earthquakes were not common at all in Palestine. So this would have been an unnerving event. But not for us, right? Californians, right? Like, oh, earthquakes, bring it. Like, we're like, yeah, we have earthquakes like we have fruit smoothies all the time. Like, it's no big deal. Bring it. But we do not have earthquakes at the level where rocks begin to split. No, we, that, that this is the reversal of nature. This is the natural world stabilizing. Next, and this one is less talked about, less believed, and less understood. And for some of you, if you haven't done a study of, of, of Christ's death, you're gonna probably freak out about what we're gonna go over. You're gonna be like, mm-mm, done. It, it's, it's wild. Matthew 27, verse 52. The tombs, the tombs also were opened and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Yes, that's exactly what you think it is. The walking dead, like it's, it's literally. <laughs> resurrection, hope, the undoing of death, the reversal of death, this is physical stabilizing. If you or if I or if anybody's struggling to believe this, you're going to hate next Sunday. <laughs> Jesus Christ, by dying, conquered, disarmed, and disabled death. And those saints that arose were these present trophies to Christ's victory on the cross over the powers of death. For us, it's a sign of things to come. And we are seeing this cross as the great stabilizer stabilizing the unstable, putting things right that have been undone by the invasiveness, invasiveness of humanity's sin. But the most invasive is this, the fourth and final massive booming 
supernatural occurrence. The fourth and final is this, Luke 23, 44. It was now about the sixth hour, 12 p.m., and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., where while the sun's light failed. From 12 to 3 p.m., the hottest part of the day, supernatural darkness spread itself all over Jerusalem and possibly the nation and possibly the world. It's like looking up into a night sky at 12 p.m. Now, darkness isn't something that we need to be taught. Nobody here needs to teach people the concept of darkness. Anybody here afraid of the dark as a kid? Or anybody here afraid of the dark now? (laughs) Real darkness produces disorientation. It makes you feel unprotected. It makes you feel alone. That's why I encourage you, if you're going to watch a horror movie, you've got to watch in the pitch black dark because it does something to you. The darkness does something to you. Maybe you're saying now, as many skeptics would, Casey, you silly dilly, there was an eclipse. (laughs) Right. I didn't think about a three-hour eclipse. I didn't think about that. Well, here's my point. A solar eclipse requires a new moon. And the Passover, which we know we're at, takes place during a full moon, and it has for centuries. It's no coincidence that throughout all of Scripture, darkness is associated as a day of chaos, sin, and judgment. This is that day. This is that day, judgment. But the question that we should all be left with is, fine, who is he judging? Who is God judging? Well, clearly it's Jesus. Duh, it's clearly Jesus. I mean, look at the crucifixion, Casey. God is judging Jesus. But I would venture to say the judgment that he is actually experiencing transcends any pierced hands or scourging. Remember, Jesus has not yet screamed from pain, from, from, a, from a moment of physical pain, but then all of a sudden, in this moment, minutes before his death, Jesus screams. Screams. Mark 15 tells us, after six hours on the cross, Christ shouted these exact words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he gave up his spirit and Jesus died. The original word for cry was only used here this one time in the entire New Testament. And it actually is translated scream. Scream. Jesus screamed to God. Or as one theologian calls this moment, the scream of the damned. Now, if we're honest, this is very troubling. This is very troubling. Because it sounds like Jesus has just given up on God. at the moment of death, like Jesus tripped at the finish line. If anyone here thinks that the Bible is a hoax, I'm sure confused on why these unheroic words would be in here then. Why have you forsaken me? This cry is the crucifixion within the crucifixion. Unless this question, and I would say this, is consumed by all of us, we will never understand what's called the gospel or the good news of Jesus. 
This was an expression for Jesus on the horror of abandonment. If anybody here struggles with abandonment, this is a whole nother level. I severely struggle with abandonment. And this, I can't even, this is depthless. It's just, it's so, it's, it's, words cannot describe it, which is exactly what God's wrath is. It's abandonment. As we discussed a couple weeks ago, wrath is abandonment, forsakenness, and separation, which is exactly what anybody who reject God, rejects God wants, right? They want separation from God. It's hell, hell, that, that being the eternal form of man's wanting. That's what hell is. It's, it's God saying, fine, have your way, separation. Yet every Jewish man or woman there would have also heard something else as Jesus is screaming from the cross. They would have heard a psalm. They would have immediately known a psalm. What? Jesus is quoting the Bible, Psalm 22. Didn't we just read that? Now I want to make two points. I want to make two points about this. They'll be brief. But first, I want to woo anybody here to the importance of Scripture. In the time of Jesus' sharpest grief or his greatest pain, what did he do? He went to God's Word. He went to the Psalms. He went to the Bible. Isn't it our temptation or tendency to go elsewhere but the Scriptures? I'm going to go to my pastor. I'm going to go to my therapist. I'm going to my best friend. I'm going to go to my discipleship group. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Jesus went to scripture. Those things aren't bad, but they definitely are secondary to God's living holy word. Jesus framed his entire life on scripture. I mean, look through the other gospel accounts. Every interaction is immersed in it. And then it's heart-wrenching for us to see, for Christians to see, people who try to live the Christian life, but do so not immersed with their life in scripture. I'll just say this and we'll move on. I want to make this brief. If Jesus needed it, so do we. Second, in those days, they didn't have the Bible in the same format we do. The way you referred to chapter and verse or a section in scripture then was by quoting the first words. So I'm up here saying, Psalm 22. They would have stood up here and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we all would have went and gone, Psalm 22. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22. It's a treacherous, hard to read messianic Psalm. But if you read it until the very end, you see that it's stuffed with hope. I just want to read it for just a few moments, just three verses. Psalm 22, it should be on the screen, verse 29. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before them. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring it to a people yet unborn. He has done it. Jesus is, if you just think about it in this way, Jesus is screaming, this psalm reveals why I'm here. This psalm reveals what I'm doing right now. Do you see it? So what's this showing us? Is he wasn't losing his grip on God. He was fixed on God. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, called this the mighty double grip of his unhesitating faith. By quoting Psalm 22, Jesus wasn't losing his faith. He was declaring it. It's an extremely powerful moment. 
This, my friends, is obedience. This is faith. This is endurance. And if this doesn't galvanize our own obedience, our own faith, our own endurance, then we've misunderstood the gospel. This is our inspiration for our good works. Not to do good or to be good to earn or to get. Some of us, including myself, need to be freed from forms or, or from types of obedience where we are trying to finish what Christ has already finished. Running past the finish line and Jesus is like, I, I, I finished it miles ago. By us always probably saying yes or by us trying to people please or by us trying to make ourselves worthy or us trying to be, make ourselves acceptable. If that is you today, friends, please don't try and finish what Jesus has already finished for you. Now we know this is a rhetorical question from Jesus. His why is not for, give me a theological answer, God. But I would love for us in closing to answer Christ's question this morning. Either write it down in your journals or in your thoughts and hearts. Let us answer this question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken Jesus? The answer would be, and the pinnacle of the answer would be, well, for you and for me. Why? For you and for me. My Casey, my John, my Emily, my Maxwell. I mean, this is, this is for you. God's love transcends sentimental love. It's ferocious, it's unrelenting kind of love. And Jesus met forsakenness. Jesus met forsakenness. Jesus met abandonment. Jesus met wrath so that you and I will never, ever have to. The crucifixion stands as a testimony of both, both how incredibly vile our sins are, while at the same time, our value to God. This means that God utterly wants you. This means the cross is that God utterly delights in you. This means that you're worth it. Some of us really need to hear that. And if we deny that and believe a false doctrine of God has abandoned me, God has forgotten me, God doesn't like me, God is just putting up with me, that God is just, you know, I'm just hanging on by a thin thread with God, or that God is a disappointed father, or that every time we sin, God goes, knew it, called it. If this is how we think, to believe that sewage is to not look at God through the keyhole-shaped cross. We've all talked a lot about substitution this last couple of weeks over our little teeny mini-series that the cross is Jesus taking our place, totally. But we are also substituted in Christ's place, where God sees us just as we had obeyed to the point in all the ways that Jesus had obeyed. Hear this. This is how awesome this is, and it's, it's gospel 101. But hear this. God loves you as he loves Jesus. Full stop. So if we ever go, God's left me, God's, God loves you as he loves his own son. There is no more tightly woven love like that in the human realm between God and his son. And through this love, proved in this love, you and I are forgiven. No level of wrongdoing can separate us like a curtain from God. Forgiven. 
We didn't get a chance to really go over it and forgive me for that, but I'm gonna end with this. It says in verse 34, Luke 23, 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. A small little teeny line as Jesus's hands or his, as Jesus's feet are being nailed to a cross. Father, forgive them. Rather than doing a full expose in forgiveness, I would rather do something else if that's okay with you. I would rather run a self-diagnostic on us. The proof of God's captivating love is when, when we then love to the point of sincere, unconditional forgiveness. Or I could ask it this way, has God's love become a reality in your life? The proof of that is gonna be in forgiveness to one another. You see, as a pastor of this church, and, and I think of other churches a lot too, but as a pastor of collective church, what, my, what I think about quite a bit is I wonder if our greatest reform needed here, collective church, in this church, I wonder if it was that of more forgiveness. Not more programs, give us community groups this or community groups that, not better music, but practicing forgiveness as a key component of our discipleship. What if we experience each other's imperfections and rather than judging or employing cynicism, rather than sending that email or that text, or rather than leaving the church, we forgave. We all so badly want forgiveness, yet we are all, I, and I'm, I, I'm guilty, I'll say it for me, I'm very quick to, to withhold forgiveness. I want full forgiveness from all of you, but I'm very quick to hold my forgiveness. It's one of the truest forms of love that we can give and hope to receive is forgiveness. So Collective Church, I'm speaking directly to you. For those who take ownership in this community, for those who are partners in this community, a primary experience and central emphasis in our midst must be that of painful, of painful forgiveness. If you've done the hard work of actually forgiving people, especially people who severely hurt you, then you know that forgiveness is absorbing the debt that they owe you. It's one of the single hardest expressions of love one could ever feel. So what Christ said there on the cross wasn't flippant or easy. That was indescribable agony. In fact, I would go as far as to say this. If you've forgiven somebody who's hurt you and it wasn't arduous, then I might tend to lean that it might've been more superficial than we thought. Bishop, B.F. Westcott expresses this, this way. Nothing superficially seems simpler than forgiveness, whereas nothing, if we look deeply, is more mysterious or more difficult. Forgiveness is the cohabitation of pain and freedom like the cross. It's a cohabitation of love and agony like the cross. It is us absorbing the death, the debt that we are owed like the cross. And what if this was part of what it means when Jesus says, listen to this, what if this was part of what it means when Jesus says, take up your cross? After hearing just some, again, forgive me for not being able to do a full sermon on every little detail of the crucifixion, but just hearing some of it, doesn't that at least just a splinter of this heighten the way we hear Jesus now say, take up your cross? Too many people think cross-bearing is traffic on the 405 or putting up with an unlikable coworker or they didn't put sour cream on my burrito. Like that's not cross-bearing. To take up your cross is to get, is to, get to the place of, of humiliating self-surrender. 
To take up your cross means we die to self-interest. The most pop, unpopular message in all of Los Angeles. Die to self-interest. Take up your cross means we declare ourselves dead to the temptations of this world. The most unpopular message in all of Los Angeles. Die to the temptations of this world. Take up your cross means that we must be prepared for the most horrific of suffering and rejoice in it. Take up your cross means that we forgive those who hurt us unconditionally. Unconditionally. I'm going to end with this verse. Galatians 2.20. Oh, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? Let's pray.